Romans chapter one. Did you know that 90, 80 to 90% of all news headlines is negative? It's, it's bad news. They, they write it from the perspective of bad news. And did you know that not only is it negative, but it's also done on purpose. Journalists actually do this on purpose. And, and so, so if you were to pick up a, a newspaper, then you're going to see that most of, you know, I, I, who does that anymore? Who, who grabs newspapers? Uh, if you do that, then you're going to see that most of the headlines, they're going to be negative headlines. Uh, and, and in fact, Journalists do this in such a way that they, they'll take even positive uh, or good stories and they'll take a negative aspect of it and they'll move it forward in the story or in the headline so that it's, uh, it's there at the front. And the reason they do this is because our interest is peaked and because our curiosity is engaged and our attention is grabbed much more forcibly and effectively with bad news as opposed to good news. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think it's important for us to note that, to realize that, and also especially during this time where we find ourselves in a lot of isolation and quarantine and distancing socially, all those kinds of things. It's important for us to know that the, the news outlets are going to be funneling toward you mostly, by and large, almost entirely bad news. So what that means is practically Turn your TV to a different channel. Don't let the news be constantly be playing in your home because you're going to feel down. You're going to feel discouraged. You're going to feel depressed. You're going to feel like everything's bad and everything's terrible and we're all going to die. And the truth is, that's, that's just not reality. That's not where we're at. It's important for us to get that stuff off and to think about something else. In a world filled with so much bad news, it's really necessary for us to hear some good news. And the book of Romans, the book of Romans is some really, really good news, but it's more than just a feel-good story. It's more than just, you know, puppy dogs and rainbows and unicorns. Uh, that, that, maybe that's a good story and you're like, oh, that's a, how cute is that? Th- this kind of good news that we're looking at in the book of Romans is much, much more than that. It's got much more substance than that. You see, the message of Romans is good news, but... Uh, and, and we're going to be in the book of Romans as, we, as we're studying through this book. It's 16 chapters, and that's going to take us about 40 weeks. Uh, and so you're like, whoa, that's, that's quite a long time. Well, there's 16 chapters. If you divide that by two, that's 32 weeks right there. And so we're not going to even get through all of the chapters in two weeks at a time. So uh, about 40 weeks is my guess, between 30 and 40 weeks. And I just want to challenge you with something. As we're starting this series through Romans, I want to challenge you to be with us every single week, every single study. And here's why. Here's the thing. I guarantee you, if you will come with me through the book of Romans, God will radically transform our lives. God will change us. That that the change that you're hoping for God to do in your life, it will absolutely be done through this study. And so come with me, study with me, travel with me through the book of Romans, and I guarantee God's going to do some amazing things with us. So with that, let's read Romans chapter 1. We're going to read the first seven verses, and uh, then we're going to take some time looking at it. So Romans chapter 1 verse 1 says this, Paul 
A bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand or before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of, the, of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience in the faith, to the faith, among the nations, among all nations, for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we thank you for the opportunity to study it. We thank you for this, uh, this masterful work of the book of Romans. Thank you for inspiring it. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for giving it to us. And we pray that as we think through it and as we give attention to it, that we would understand the depth of your grace, of your love, of your calling, of your goodness. Uh, not that we would just understand some theological concepts, but that we would know you. So God, help us with that. We need you desperately to do that. And we know that you can. And we know that you're, you're able to do that uh, transcending uh, not only time, but also space. That, that uh, you, can, you can do that even though we're not gathered together in the same room right now. That you can, you can uh, minister to us by your spirit. And so we pray that you would. We pray that you would give us your uh, understanding and that we would draw nearer to you. We pray together in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. As we look at Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 7, we're going to do a, little, do a little bit of an introduction and then also get into this section in these first seven verses. And so we're going to do that in two parts today, okay? We're going to look at the first part is an overview of Romans, and then the second part is going to be four aspects of the gospel that are outlined for us here in Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Now, uh, the first part here, let's just jump right in, an overview of Romans. Uh, I don't know if you sense a little bit of speed in my voice. That's because I have way more information than I have time to deliver it to you, all right? So there is a lot to say uh, in terms of all this, and so we're going to just jump in. Romans uh, is, as we look at an overview of this, it's uh, one theme. It's got one theme throughout the entire book. It's divided into six pieces. That's how we're going to look at it, is six divisions, and that spans over these 16 chapters in Romans. So the theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. When you look through Romans, when you're looking at the, the book of Romans, it's, it's declaring to us, it's proclaiming to us, it's preaching to us of the righteousness of God. Or otherwise stated, it, the, the book answers the most important question that you could ever ask. How can a person be made right with God? How is that possible? How can that relationship be made correct and restored? That's the, the question that the book of Romans answers. That's the theme is the righteousness of God. And the divisions that we're going to look at, uh, these six divisions, the first one is the introduction. That's we're partially in that today. We'll, we'll conclude the introduction next week. Uh, it's verses 1 through 17. And then secondly, we're going to look at the next division, which is the wrath of God, verses uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And then the third part is the grace of God, chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 8, verse 39. Then the plan of God, chapters 9 through 11. The will of God, chapters 12 through 15. And then finally, chapter 16 is a conclusion to this letter, to this book. Now, the entirety of Romans is the proclamation and explanation of 
the gospel. Look at, look at verse one again. Notice it says there, Paul, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to, notice this phrase at the end of verse one, the gospel of God. That the gospel is the, the headline of Paul's letter here. That, that the, the entirety of Romans is about that one singular idea. It's a proclamation of the gospel and it's an explanation of the gospel. Now the word gospel, it's a Greek word uh, that's, uh, the way you say it is euangelion. That's, that's how you say the Greek word for it. And what that means is it's a very simple word. It literally means good news. That's, that's all it means. It just means good news. The good news of God. And this word gospel is used 60 times, 6-0, 60 times throughout the book of Romans. Now, this word in, the, in Greek uh, comes, you know, the Greek language comes from a Greek legend, which may, it's a story that may or may not be true about a, a Greek soldier who uh, was, was running uh, 25 miles from uh, this city called Marathon all the way to Athens. And that's where we get the idea of running a marathon. Uh, and so he runs all the way to Athens and he comes declaring, proclaiming the euangelion, the good news of victory over the invading uh, Persians. And so this is where, where that, that kind of gets its roots from. In the Roman culture, which used the Greek language, the Roman culture, uh, kings would have uh, a herald that would go before them to preach a euangelion, to preach a gospel. They would come out and they would proclaim good news before the king. As the king was traveling, a herald would say good things about the king. Or if uh, something was uh, happening within the king's household that was good news, the, the herald would come out and preach a gospel, proclaim a gospel, a euangelion, and he would say, you know, a son is born, or uh, the victory is won, or whatever it happens to be. It's this good news that's being proclaimed. Uh, through this herald. Now, Paul writes as a headline over this, uh, this series in Romans, over this book in Romans, the first thing that he gets to right here as his headline over it all, if he's writing a newspaper article or if he's writing a letter or whatever, his headline is the good news of God. That's what it says there at the end of verse one, the gospel of God. It's the good news of of God. Now, good news transitions from something that is uh, nice to something that is necessary when it's understood in light of bad news. It's, it's like, I don't know the last time you were on a plane was, but uh, I, I'm assuming it wasn't recently. <laughs> it's maybe for some of you, but you know, uh, maybe, you know, the last time you were on a plane, uh, I don't know if you remember the first time you were on a plane, but when, you know, I remember when I was on a plane the, for the first time, when the flight attendant was going over all of the different things that you have to be careful about in, in case of some sort of emergency landing, which is code word for crash, uh, then, you know, you got to, you know, there's going to be oxygen masks and there's flotation devices and all those kinds of things. All that stuff was like, man, I have got to know this. This is good news, you know. Uh, but, you know, the plane didn't crash and uh, I've been on a number of flights since then. And so now when they go up there and they do their thing, like most people, I'm not really paying attention because it really kind of doesn't matter. But everything changes when there's bad news. It, it's like when, that time when uh, there were four people on a small plane. There was the richest man in the world 
There was the smartest men in the world. There was a pastor and a teenage kid. And they're all on this plane. And uh, the plane had some plane trouble. And as they're flying, they're going to crash. And so the pilot grabs a parachute and jumps out of the plane. But he only left three more parachutes uh, in the plane. And so the richest man in the world says, hey, I'm so wealthy. My, we my wealth has to be used properly. And I've got to manage it. So I need one of the parachutes. And he grabbed one and he jumps out of the plane. The richest or the smartest man in the world says, hey, the world needs needs my intelligence. The world needs my wisdom. And so I have got to uh, be here for the world. And so he grabs another parachute and jumps out of the plane. And, and the pastor and the teenage kid are there, uh, you know, with one parachute left. And the pastor turns to the teen and says, hey, you know what? Uh, I've made my peace with God. I'm, I'm okay with dying. You go ahead and take the final parachute. And the teen said, you know, pastor, thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. But it's okay. Uh, there are still two parachutes left. And the pastor said, how is that even possible? And the teen said, well, because the smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. <laughs> the, apparently he wasn't the smartest man in the world. <laughs> but good news becomes really important in light of bad news, right? The, the parachutes aren't really great news until the plane's going down. And that's the, the point of Romans. You see, Romans is all about the gospel message. But it's, even though it's good news, it's not all positive news. In Romans, there's going to be some very bad news. Very bad news that we are all condemned under sin to die eternally. That's, that is the worst news you could ever hear. That, that is, that's, that's what Romans chapter 3 talks about. That we are all sinners. We are all condemned to die before God. We are all condemned for eternal separation in hell from God. And, and that's the bad news. And that makes the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection so, so tremendous. That's what takes the good news of Jesus from nice to necessary. And so for us, as we're studying through this, as God convicts you of your sin, as you realize the filthiness of your own soul, as we travel through the gospel, uh, according to Paul, as it's been said there in the book of Romans, I want to encourage you that this is actually a gracious gift from God. This isn't God beating you up. This isn't God mad at you. This isn't God trying to, to just thwart you and, and uh, kick you down. It's not for your despair. It's actually for your good. It's to bring you to the end of yourself. And at that moment, repentance happens. We turn from our way. We turn from our sin. We turn to the Lord. And so let, let God's word through the book of Romans bring you to him. Now, the church in Rome is one of only a few at this time uh, in, in church history that did not begin as a direct result of Paul going to Rome and preaching the gospel. At the writing of this, Paul has never been to Rome. He's never, he's never been there, but he wants to come there. We're going to see that next week as we look, that he really wants to be with the people of Rome. So how in the world, if that's true, how did, that, how did it happen that the church in Rome started? Well, in Acts chapter 2, uh, we read how Peter is preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after uh, Passover, so it's 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter's preaching the first public message of the gospel there uh, in, in Jerusalem. And uh, there are 3,000 people who give their lives to Jesus, who get saved, who re repent, turn from their sin, and dive into relationship with Jesus. And among those 3,000, we're told in Romans, uh, excuse me, in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, that the, the, the people of Rome, some people from Rome are there. 
And so the people from Acts 2, they travel all the way back to Rome, among other places. I think there's something like 16 different uh, people groups that are mentioned there in in, uh, Acts chapter 2. They go back to Rome, and from there, the gospel spreads. It's also not too far-fetched to think that among Paul's journeys throughout uh, Turkey and Greece and all of the, the surrounding region there of Asia Minor, that the people from there perhaps could have visited Rome and from there stayed and strengthened the church. And we'll see that that is in fact true as we get to chapter 16 and a list of a bunch of names of people that Paul knows uh, who are there in the church at Rome. And so they carry the the gospel of the message back with them from Jerusalem to Rome. And this is the birth of the church in Rome. So why in the world is Paul writing this then? I mean, a lot of the letters that we see that uh, uh, in our New Testament, in our Bible, it's Paul writing to somebody he knows. It's Paul writing to a church he planted and he's concerned about them. And he's saying, hey, we got to fix some stuff. You know, hey, church in Corinth, you guys are pretty jacked up. Uh, you, you need some correction, right? If you, if you want to look at that, we have a whole series through First uh, Corinthians and uh, there's some pretty tremendous, crazy stuff they're going through. Or he writes a letter to Timothy and he says, hey, Timothy, here's how you should uh, organize the church. Here's some encouragement for you as a pastor. And so typically that's why Paul is writing, but that's not at all why Paul's writing here in this book of Romans. He's writing for four specific reasons uh, he's, as, uh, is why he's writing this letter to Rome. Number one, he wants to encourage them in their walk with Jesus. He, he wants to, to let them know, hey, the, the gospel that was preached to you, the message that you've heard, it's the right message. You're, you're following the Lord Jesus. You are moving forward in the right way. And I just want to encourage you in your faith in the Lord. I want to encourage you in your walk with Jesus and, and uh, help you to keep moving forward. Secondly, what he wants to do is he wants to edify uh, the, them in Jesus. To edify is a word that means to build them up. He wants to build up their faith. Not just say, hey, you're doing good, but also let me add to your faith. Let me help you understand it in more depth and more clarity and, and add more layers to this and help you to grow in that, that kind of a building thing. Thirdly, he wants to embolden them to live for Jesus. To say, you need to actually do something with your faith. It's not enough to just know that knowing has got to translate into doing. That, that what, whatever is in your head has got to sink into your heart and come out of your hands. That this is a vital part of being in Christ. He wants to embolden them to live for Jesus. And then fourthly and finally, he wants to empower them to support his work for Jesus. You see, he wants to give them reason why they should partner with him in the gospel. Paul is very much like a missionary who needs the support of churches because his mission is to travel around the world and preach the gospel. In Romans chapter 15, verse 28, at the end of the book that we'll get to sometime in the next 10 years, uh, we'll see there, I promise, 40 weeks, okay? Somewhere around 40 weeks or less, we'll be done. All right, Romans 15, 28, it says this. As soon as I have delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain. Now, what this is, is that uh, Paul was on sort of a missionary journey to, uh, to gra- uh, grab a collection from other churches in the, in the uh, Asia Minor region because the church in Jerusalem was suffering and they, they needed financial support. And so all these other churches were wanting to send money to the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul was the one that they entrusted to carry the money to Jerusalem to support those churches. And Paul says, as soon as I'm done with this task, my intention is to come to you 
not just to get to Rome, but on my way to Spain. He actually had his sights set on getting to Spain and he knew that he needed the church in Rome in order to get there. All right, so that's a brief overview of the book of Romans. There's a whole lot more we could go into, but I think that kind of gives us a mentality or an idea of what Romans is basically about. And so I want to spend the rest of our time on four aspects of the gospel through Romans uh, chapter one, verses one through seven. And, and typically we would have sort of a big idea and all that stuff. And this is kind of functioning like our big idea, these four aspects of the gospel uh, in Romans one, one through seven. Now, this opening section of Romans, these first seven verses, it functions a lot like a summary for the entire book. Paul basically tells us the big thoughts about what he's about to go into. He, he's, it's kind of like the 30,000 foot flyover view uh, before he gets into the details later on. And, and in this, one of the things to note is that the book of Romans, this letter is known as the Mount Everest of theology. There are some massive ideas, some huge concepts, some big things for us to climb over and to climb through. It is so deep and rich with theology. Sometimes it's complicated. The ideas are very complicated, which is why it's going to take us time to walk through it. We don't want to just gloss over these things. But uh, in all of it, here's what I want you to grasp. It, it is so deep and rich theologically, but it is merely, it is just, it is only a presentation and explanation of the gospel. That is all that Romans is. There's nothing more than that. And, and I tell you that to encourage you that as Christians, we never graduate from the gospel. We never get to a point to where we're like, yeah, that's what I needed. I heard that back then. If as I'm saying this to you and, and you're thinking, yeah, I've, I've heard the gospel before. I've already given my life to Jesus. Let's move on then what I want to encourage you with is that, that your mentality is wrong, that the way you're thinking about this is off. We don't ever graduate from the gospel. We merely grow in comprehending and apprehending it. It's so simple. The gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. I mean, all of my children made a decision to give their lives to Jesus when they were around five years old. It's so simple a five-year-old can understand the, the basic concept of the gospel. And yet it is so deep. It is so deep that uh, uh, the most brilliant mind can spend their entire lives plumbing the depths of the gospel and never reach the bottom. It, it is massively, massively important. So let's look at this first of these four uh, ideas uh, of the aspects of the gospel. The first one is the servant of the gospel in verse one. Notice there it says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now, Paul here opens the letter by identifying himself. This is a very common uh, way that letters were written in this time. It's not like our day. If, you've, if you receive a letter, then you know what we do is we write who it's to at the beginning, and then we write who it's from at the very end. And if you, write, if you receive a letter that's got multiple pages, if you're like me, you go to the very end, find out who it's from, and then read the, the, the letter. Here in this time, I think it's a much better way to write letters. Here's who it's from. And then we see there in verse seven, a couple of verses later, here's who it's to. Uh, and so it's very simple as far as that goes. But Paul introduces himself here and he says uh, his name there, Paul. Now, Paul is the Greek version of his Hebrew name, Saul. 
Saul and Paul is one and the same. It's the same person. Uh, when you read through Acts, you see that it begins by calling him Saul and then transitions into Paul later on. And this is not God changing his name the way that God changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham or changed uh, um, Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. It's not a name change. This is just simply Hebrew and Greek. It's the same name. It's the same word uh, and all that, that kind of stuff. So most likely Paul was named after the first Hebrew king, King Saul. And uh, they were both of the tribe of Benjamin. So it makes sense that they would be named, uh, that he would be named after him. And, and in this, not only does he identify himself, but he uses three identifying words to qualify who he is. Notice there the first word, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now this word bondservant is a very specific word. It's a very unique word. It's a very intentional word. And some people in trying to understand this and trying to connect uh, other biblical ideas, they try to connect this, this word, bondservant, to Exodus chapter 21, verse 6, that describes um, a, a slave that was a, a slave from debt that changed and became a slave by choice. You know, they, they, it says that they would take this person who said that they wanted to remain a slave and they would, they would go to the doorpost and they'd drive an all through his ear, basically they'd have an ear piercing. And uh, then that would be a symbol that this person was a slave by choice, by, by choosing to not have their freedom, but remain in slavery. And some people try to connect bond servants to that idea. And the reason is because of the part of this word that says servant. And I think that that is a, an, an unfortunate translation. You see, this word in Greek is the word doulos or doulos, however you want to say that. And it literally means slave. It doesn't mean servant. There's no choice. There's no optional thing involved in this. It just means slave. So a better way to say this would be bond slave instead of bond servant. And the reason for this in our American translations is because it's a hyper reaction to American slavery, which is a terrible tragedy. It's a blight on our nation's history. And it's something that is absolutely terrible. American slavery is something that God condemns and absolutely hates. And so in this, because of our culture, our language has taken this word and it's, it's sensitive to the word slave. And so the word servant is used instead. And so we, we've got to kind of get past that a little bit in order to see what the reality of this is. Now, when we think about bond slave, if we think about it that way, this word, if we were to think of it in bond slave, it actually emphasizes the idea of slavery. Bound or bond means that you're bound. It means that you're not yours, that you're not free. You don't come and go as you choose or as you please, that you're not someone who's hired to do a specific job and you're free to go home. No, you are you are staying there. You are the possession of your owner. You're owned and not free. A slave requires a Lord. You can't be a slave without a Lord. And so this, he says, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And so he declares his slavery to Jesus, that he exalts Jesus, showing him as Lord, as God, as King, as ruler, as the one overall. And, and, he's, and he's, as he does this, not only is this for him, but it's also for us because a defining mark of all believers is when Jesus is your Lord. That, that there's, a, there's some people who they're willing to allow Jesus to be their savior, but they stop very short of Jesus being their Lord. 
Yeah, Jesus, I want your stuff. I want you to save me. I, I want the nice things. I want the blessings. I want you to provide for me. I want you to make my life easier. I want you to just provide stuff for me. And, uh, and you know, whatever thing I think up, I pray to you and then you go get it for me. That, that's the relationship that a lot of people want with Jesus. And, and they don't want anything to do with the lordship part of Jesus. They want to remain as Lord and they want to add to, to their lives him being the savior. And that's not the gospel. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you God. He died on the cross to purchase you from yourself, to get you out of the cycle of crazy that you dive yourself into. And so Jesus is not only Savior, but he's also Lord. He's Lord of all. A defining mark of all believers is that Jesus is your Lord. And this is that when Jesus is your Lord, then you take your true position as slave. As slave. Notice there, not only uh, this idea of bondservant, but notice he says there, the second word, called to be an apostle. The, this word called is the second word that he introduces, and it's connected to the idea of apostleship. He says, I'm called to be an apostle. Now, an apostle is a sent one. That, that's what that word means. It's a one who is sent on behalf of another. And this has three applications. There's the big A apostle, there's the little a apostle, and then there's the, the aspect of everybody or all people in Christ uh, given purpose by Jesus. Now, the big A apostle, it has to do with an office. This is an office of apostleship, and this office is closed. One of the primary things that is necessary in order for someone to hold the office of an apostle is they had to be alive at the time of Jesus being on the earth. And so that excludes you, it excludes me. And so if anybody takes the title of apostle, if they introduce themselves as, if I say, I'm Apostle Cody, uh, and that's my Facebook page, you know, or my Facebook name or whatever, or if I call you or send you an email as Apostle so-and-so, then mark those people as crazy and they're just trying to take something from you. These are, these are borderline, if not heretics, okay? So avoid them at all costs. They are not looking for your good. They're just looking to take advantage of you. Apostleship is, a, is an office that is closed and the people who take that title are dangerous and must be avoided. Now there's a little a apostle and that's the gift of Apostle, a spiritual gift of apostleship. And what this is, is this is people who they see the potential of what could be and they have the ability to bring it into pass. It's like how Paul functions not only as uh, the office of apostle, but also in the gift of apostleship where he goes around to different places and he sees where there could be believers and he preaches the gospel and where there was no church, now there's a church and he raises up leaders and puts them in position and, and now there's ministry taking place. It's, it's people who go plant churches or they take church and they, they see how there's, there's the, the opportunity for expansion and how we could develop something new. It's people who have that visionary uh, kind of ability to see what could be and not just what could be, not just seeing, but actually bring it into path, bring it to pass, bring it into reality. Um, now, the third uh, aspect of this, the third application of this is, is all. In a very real sense, every Christian is an apostle. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if, you have, if, you have, if you're part of the family of God, then you are an apostle in this sense that you've been sent by Jesus with purpose. He's chosen where you live. He's chosen the people who are around you. He's chosen the, the type of work that you're able to do. He's chosen to place you and position you. You're sent 
by Jesus. Are you on his mission? Or are you spending all your time trying to get him to do your mission? What, what, are, you, what are you doing with that? And so, uh, so in this, if Jesus is Lord, then also we are sent by him. And this is a vital part of, of our lives, to be on, on his purpose and his mission in the world, the world. Thirdly, this third idea that he gives to us is, notice they're separated to the gospel of God. This separation. Now, this word's a unique word. It's an interesting word when you look into it. Uh, it's a very similar Greek word to the word that's used for Pharisee. So when you look at the, idea, the guys that would say that they are Pharisees, and Paul, in fact, was a Pharisee, uh, that this word is a very similar kind of a word. Now, Pharisees, what they, what they were known as, what they prided themselves on was to be separated from everybody else. That's what, that's what they were. They were separated. That's what Pharisee meant. We are not like you. We are different than you. And in fact, they would take their robe and, and if they were in a crowd, they would bunch it up and they would hold it close to themselves as they walked through a crowd because they didn't want their robe to accidentally touch a sinner or worse, a filthy Gentile, someone who's not Jewish, and that would defile them. And so they would keep their robes close to them that way, making sure that that didn't take place because they were separated from everybody. Now notice what Paul says here. He sort of has a play on this word. Paul now has been saved by the gospel of Jesus and it's changed everything to where he doesn't even see himself as separated from. Notice he's separated too. He's separated to the gospel of God. He's not separated from all these other people. He is separated to the gospel. Paul's life is literally ruined for anything else. He just can't do anything else other than be a, a slave and servant of Jesus and a preacher and proclaimer of his gospel. This, is as, this has deep, deep connection to his calling, to his calling as a proclaimer of the gospel. Now, too many Christians are known by what they're against. They're known by what they're, what they're not for, what they're separated from. I don't do that. I'm, I'm not a part of that. And maybe even in your own Christian life, if you've uh, told somebody about your faith in Jesus, maybe you've even said it this way. Well, I used to do this and I used to do that. And then I, my life was all about this. And then Jesus uh, saved me and now it's not. If that's how you tell your 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 uh, your testimony, if that's the way that you tell people about Jesus and how he changed your life, there's not really a lot of life change right there. It's just saying I used to do some stuff that I thought was awesome and I thought was cool and now I can't. That, that is a terrible way to tell your testimony, right? The, the gospel isn't what you're separated from, it's what you're separated to. That's the gospel. Too many Christians are all about, well, we're not with them. We're not a part of them. We're not with that group. But, but you have no idea what they're, what they're for. And so we have got to, as people of God, be ready to, to proclaim who we're for, what we're separated to, and that, that's Jesus. You see, here's the reality. It is possible for you to have a saved soul and a lost life. It's possible for you to, to have your eternal destiny in heaven and to literally completely waste your days here on earth, to do absolutely nothing for the advancement of the kingdom of God, to do absolutely nothing for the sake of the gospel, to not be separated to the gospel of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to be a pastor or be a preacher or anything like that, that God's given you certain gifts. He's given you certain calling. He's given you certain mission. The question is, do you know what it is? And are you pursuing it? Are you doing what God has called you to do? Or are you just trying to get him to make your life more comfortable today before you go 
to eternity in heaven. It's possible to have a saved soul and a lost life. Now, all three of these words, they take us back to Acts chapter nine when Paul got saved, when he was, he was literally knocked off his high horse. Jesus shows up a bright light, knocks him off of his horse. And in that moment is where he received his calling. It's where he received his separation. Uh, it's where he received his slavery to Jesus. Now, uh, and, and in this, at the time of, of this writing uh, of the book of Romans, Paul has now been a Christian preacher for about 20 years. So it's been a while since that moment of, of, of his salvation. And now he's been a Christian preacher for 20 years. Now, not only the, that, but also the source of the gospel. We see that in verse two. Look at verse two. It says this, which, right? The, the gospel of God is the context, which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures. This is really important. You've got to get this. The gospel is not the creation of human imagination. The good news of Jesus is not something that is a created thing. It's not a religious concept. It, that, that the idea is that it is the, look at verse one, the gospel of God. It belongs to him. It's his idea. It's his thing. It's, he came up with it. He, he brought it into, uh, into reality. It's his design. It's, it's his plan. Now, religion is not the gospel. There is absolutely no good news in religion. There's nothing that's good about, hey, be a better person, try really hard. If you do the right things, then maybe God will accept you. If your good works outweigh your bad works, then perhaps God will bring you into his eternal kingdom. If you, if you live properly, then maybe you can, you can outweigh all your bad karma and come back as a higher form of being or whatever. All of that stuff, all that religious concept, it's not good news. That's terrible news. Because when everything's quiet and it's just you and, and you're just alone in your bed with your own thoughts before you go to sleep, you know in that moment, you're not really good. You know that internally you're broken. You know that internally there's really, I, I've got some, some issues. I've got some things going on. And no matter how much good I do, it's never gonna be enough to outweigh the bad. I'm never gonna be able to clean myself up. And that can plunge you into despair or it can bring you to the end of yourself so you can see who Jesus really is. Because here's the reality. Religion is a human attempt to reach up to God. But the gospel, the good news, the gospel of God is that God reaches down to you. That you don't have to, even while you're, while you're not reaching up, Romans 5, we'll get to it. While, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. It wasn't on your best day that God reached down to you to save you. It's on your worst day. That's when God reaches into your mess in order to lift you out of it. Skip Heidzig says it like this. Man-made religion is all about what man can do for God. The gospel is all about what God has already done for man. On September 2nd, uh, 2019, just a, a, you know, I don't know how long ago that was, eight months or 10 months ago or something like that, uh, not too long ago, uh, someone broke the world record for the highest standing jump. Do you know how, how high they jumped? It, it's absolutely crazy. This guy's name is uh, Brett Williams. He did it, I think it was in Texas. He jumped just standing, didn't get a running start, just standing. He jumped vertically five, and a, five feet, five inches. Five feet. 
feet five inches. Are you kidding me? Like that is a ridiculously high jump. Now, if, if Brett and I were going to compete, man, I, I'm going to get probably three feet less than him. <laughs> you know, like I am not going to go very high uh, compared to this guy. Re- he is ridiculously amazing when it comes to this high jump. And maybe you and I, if we were to compete, I would have a very hard time not beating you. Uh, if you jumped higher than me, then I would have to do something to figure out how to get higher than you because that's just who I am. Super competitive. If we're jumping, we're going to try to do that. Now, here's the thing. when we measure ourselves against ourselves and we try to jump and see who can jump the highest, we can probably look pretty good against some people and maybe look pretty terrible against others. But what if you and me and Brett, we're all going to try to jump to the moon? Who's going to win? Yeah, that's right. Nobody, nobody's going to win, right? Brett's five feet is literally nothing compared to the 2,000 238,900 miles that it is. Like five feet of that is nothing. It is, it's minuscule. It's, it's completely pointless. And that's exactly the message of the gospel. You can't jump to the moon, but Jesus did. And he reaches back down and pulls you up. He did what was impossible for you so that he could save you from yourself. It's not about how high you can jump. It's not about what you're able to accomplish because your good works amount to absolutely nothing. But the great news, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did it on your behalf. That is the good news of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. Notice there in verse two, it says, which he promised before through God promised, through what? His prophets uh, in the Holy Scriptures. That here, uh, this is a direct reference. The Holy Scriptures is a direct reference to the Old Testament where there are 330 prophecies specifically about Jesus. His birth, his gender, the city he would live in, where he would go, uh, his life and ministry, death, all sorts of things are prophesied there for us about Jesus specifically. And New Testament Christianity is not some kind of defection from the Old Testament. It's not like the Old Testament was coming along and then the New Testament sort of is this weird attraction or this weird sect that goes away from Judaism. No, that's not true at all. In fact, the Old Testament is Christian literature. It's it's not Jewish as much as it's Christian, which we'll get into in the book of Romans as we continue through this. That that the New Testament, Christianity, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 5:17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, which is the Old Testament, right? No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Jesus declares that the New Testament, the new covenant, this this gospel message is the logical, supernaturally natural fulfillment flow of the Old Testament. You see, biblical prophecy, it's not like reading a fortune cookie where they say, you're going to, do some really cool things next month. It'll be awesome. That's vague and uncertain and crazy. Like it, that could be true of anybody at any moment. No, biblical prophecy is very specific, very nuanced, very um, calculated. It's filled with so much detail and multiple contingencies that it's literally impossible to happen to be filled by, fulfilled by chance. The gospel is not speculation about God, but it's revelation of God. 
That's what the gospel is. That, that the, the Old Testament has progressive revelation of God. That going all the way back to the very beginning. In fact, Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 tells us that Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world. So before the world was ever created, the Jesus and the plan of salvation was already in place. And as the revelation of the Lord has progressed through time. It's something that is known as the scarlet thread that you can see this, this mentioning of foreshadowing of prophesying of Jesus from, uh, from Genesis through the, the life of Abraham and David and the prophets and all the way through to Jesus uh, in the New Testament that it's all woven together, that it's this progressive revelation of God throughout his scripture. And that is what the gospel is. It's not speculation about God, but it's the revelation of God. All right, thirdly, the subject of the gospel. The verse, verses three and four, it says this, concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what is this? The prophets uh, prophesied in verse uh, two, what, about what? The all they prophesied concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The message of the Bible, its big theme and its central figure is about one person. And guess who it's not? It's not you. You're not the theme of the Bible. You're not the message of the Bible. The Bible is not about your best life now. The Bible is not about how to, how to have five things for a better this, that, or the other. The Bible is not about how to get rich. It's not about how to have a, a healthy marriage. It's not about how to raise great kids. It's not about how to have the best lawn on the block. It's not about how to get a raise at work. It's not about any of those things. It's about Jesus. Now, there are a lot of other sub-themes and, and sub-categories that are throughout the scripture, but they all are in subjection to and support of and pointing to one person, one message, one thing. It's Jesus and his great glory and his willing sacrifice for you. That's what the Bible is all about. There are these other sub-themes going throughout the scripture, but Jesus, the person and work of Jesus is their aim. If, you're, if I were to take your Bible and tell you what it is sort of in a nutshell, give it to you the Bible at a glance, it's this. The Old Testament is anticipation of Jesus. The Gospels are the presentation of Jesus. The book of Acts is the continuation of Jesus. The epistles are an explanation of Jesus. Epistles is a word that means letters. And, the, and revelation is the consummation of Jesus. It is literally all about Jesus. There is nothing in scripture that's not about Jesus. It is all about him. And so Jesus uh, is, verse three, notice there it says that he's the son of David, that, that his uh, um, lineage is traced to King David, the second king of Israel, meaning that he's fully human, that he's, he's a man and he has a lineage and he's born in the line of David. In verse four, he's also, notice, born by the Holy Spirit. He's born of the Holy Spirit, meaning that he's fully God, that Jesus is unique in human history, that he is simultaneously fully man and fully God and this qualifies him uh, as a man to be our substitute. That because Jesus is a man and not something else, he can substitute himself for humanity. Uh, also, as God, he is fully qualified to be our savior. I can't die for you and save you from your sins. I'm a sinner myself. 
I've got, I can't even die for my own sin, let alone yours. So Jesus as a man can substitute and as God is qualified to save us. You see, Jesus didn't become God at some point. He wasn't born as, as a baby and just like any one of us. And he, you know, sort of came to himself one day and realized, I think I could be God. And then started this journey of trying to become God and, uh, and, and somehow become, become uh, deity. No, he retained all of his deity while being clothed with humanity. He never ceased to be God. Look at verse four. It says this. It says, and he was declared to be God Notice the end of verse four, by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is the declaration of his deity. How many people have you known that have come back from the dead on their own? They just revived themselves. They just took their life back up as they willed. I don't know anybody. I don't know of any story in human history that's credible other than this one. This is the only credible story in human history that talks about this resurrection. You see, declared Jesus to be God doesn't mean that he became God. It's just showing that he already was. He he didn't become God. Becoming God, losing your deity and then becoming God again, that's the story of Thor. That that is not, that's Norse mythology. That is not the, that is not scripture. That's not Bible truth, okay? Uh, There are there, there have been lots of lunatics throughout history, throughout human history, who've said that they're some sort of God, who've claimed to be some sort of deity. In fact, in this time, uh, in the Bible times, Egyptian rulers were thought of as deity. They were thought of as gods. The Roman emperor, Caesar, was, was worshipped and declared himself to be God. They thought that they were divine, but Jesus' resurrection proves definitively his claim to deity. Alexander McLaren in his... Uh, in his um, Commentary, Exposition of Holy Scripture, uh, says it like this, All that distinguishes Christianity and makes it worth believing or mighty is inseparably connected to the resurrection. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, because there's no tomb of Jesus in Jerusalem, this gives us the, the clarifying, powerful message of the gospel that is worth believing. I mean, think about it like this. If someone's going to tell me about what life after death is like, I'm going to believe the guy who died and defeated death. I'm going to believe that guy over anybody else. All right. All right. So uh, fourthly and finally, as we, I got to go faster, the scope of the gospel, as we look to try to wrap up the scope of the gospel verses five through seven, it says this through him, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are also the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this former Pharisee says some really interesting things here in this section. He uses very inclusive language. Notice how he says, we and all nations. You see, Pharisees didn't think about that, think that uh, about the world. They, that's not what they were taught. That wasn't their theological slant. They, they were taught, they thought Gentiles, everybody who's not Jewish, they're made by God just to be firewood for hell. Like God made those people because hell needs something to burn with and so might as well have those people. That's the way Pharisees, Pharisees thought. They actually thought it was 
improper for them to uh, try to convert Jew, uh, non-Jews into Judaism. Uh, they, they would try to dissuade you. And even today, Jews will try to dissuade you from becoming Jewish because they believe it's their duty to keep you out of Judaism, not to let you in. You've got to be really, really um, a have a lot of perseverance to become a Jew. Uh, it takes a long time. You've got to go through a lot of hoops and th because that's the way that they think. They think Gentiles are just filthy people that God uses to plunge them into hell to stoke the fires of hell. So this former Pharisee is using some crazy words. He says, we, he puts himself on the same level of these filthy Romans, these debaucherous, terrible people. And he says, I'm just like you. And, and he says, we are of all nations, including himself with them. You see the gospel and Christianity is not, it's not just some, something that's for a certain people group. In fact, did you know the Bible and uh, the gospel is not a Western ideology, you were probably taught something different in school. You were probably taught in some sort of liberal college, if you went to college, that, the, that Christianity is just a Western religion and that we're trying to force it on the world. That is absolute nonsense. Where did Christianity come from? Jesus. I, I don't know the last time you checked, Jesus is Jewish. Jesus was born uh, uh, as the Jewish God to the Jewish people in the Jewish nation in order to seek and save the whole world. We are here in Colorado about as far away as you can get from Jerusalem if you were to travel literally around the world. Like it's, it's harder to get further away than we are currently. We are, it is not a Western religion. It wasn't cooked up in some lab in Kentucky and then forced on the rest of the world. This is, that is, that is absolute nonsense. That is not the truth of Christianity. You see, the, the, the idea is that God stepped into human history to save all of us. Now, freedom of religion, freedom of religion, some um, Americans have foolishly thought this to, to mean that all, all religions have equal claims to, to truth. But you know, your belief is your belief and my belief is my belief and they're all, they're all equally true and we can just say, you know, let's all just say that uh, your truth claim is the same as my truth claim. That, that's just not how truth works. That, that's cute and it's nice and it makes people think that they're being kind to each other, but it's actually really mean. It's really deceptive. For me to not be willing to tell you the truth that you are a sinner doomed and damned to hell apart from the blood of Jesus, how much do I have to hate you to, to withhold that information from you? The truth is, not everything is true. My beliefs don't dictate reality and neither do yours. You can believe whatever you want. You have the freedom to do that in America, but it doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's real. It doesn't mean it's true. In Mark chapter two, verse 17, Jesus said it like this. When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people have no need of a doctor. Sick people do. I have come not... Uh, to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. You see, here's the reality. There's no Jewish gospel and then something for everybody else. There's no, just like there, you know, with a disease, there's no such thing as an American cure for a disease. If you have a disease and you're human, the same cure works for you whether you live here in Denver or you live in the UK or you live in Kenya or you live in China or India or anywhere else. Why? Because you're human. And the disease of sin has penetrated the human heart, every human heart. 
and we are all doomed and condemned as a result of it. You see, humanity is cursed with the disease of a fallen soul through sin. And the only cure for all people is the blood of Jesus. It's his death. It's his burial. It's his resurrection. You see, the blood of Jesus makes it possible for us to have all of these things that are stated through verses five through seven. Look at verse five. It says this, that we're given uh, grace and apostleship. We're given the ability to be obedient to God. That, that we, we have God's grace given to us, that, his, that we don't deserve his goodness, but he gives it to us anyway. He gives us this, this calling, this direction in life, this being sent by him in life. We're able to obey the Lord in, in that. We're given verse six, calling. You are the called of Jesus Christ through his blood. Look at verse seven. You are the beloved of God not because of anything you have to offer, not because you're amazing, not because you scored high on your test score, not because you're a great artist, not because you work really hard, not because you pay your taxes, not because you raise your kids well, not because you give to the church, not because of any of those things. You are the beloved of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus and his victorious resurrection. That is what makes you the beloved of God. Also in verse seven, we're called saints. We're called, we're, we are called the grace and peace of God. Now, what makes this message good news? Because like I said before, no religion offers any good news. At best, religion offers a guess at what might be an attempt to get God's attention. Skip Heidsick says it like this, the world has many religions, but only one gospel. There are lots of religions, but only one gospel. The message of Romans and the message of Christianity is not a religious message at all. It is absolutely unique in its declaration. And there, I'll leave you with this as we conclude. Just three things, three reasons why this message is good news. Because God is there. That is good news. God exists. You're not a random accident. There, there, there aren't some, some, some molecules that bumped into each other and then accidentally popped out something that maybe kind of looked like life from the goo to the zoo to you. That is not reality. The reality is God is there and he has put things together. He's revealed himself through scripture and the person and work of Jesus. He's not distant. He's not disconnected. He's actually there. Secondly, beyond that, God is knowable. That, that God is more than just there, but there's a personal relationship that you can have with God. Now, maybe I say that to you. I say, you can have a personal relationship with God and your immediate thought is, why would I want that? You kind of think of it like a personal relationship with your junior high or middle school principal. I don't want a relationship with that guy. Like that guy's just there to get me in trouble and to make sure that I'm not doing the cool stuff that I really want to do and I, that I'm not able to have fun. That is not at all the relationship that we're talking about. It's not the relationship with your principal. It's the relationship with a loving dad. That's the kind of relationship that we're talking about. That God's not only there, he's not just, just kind of present, but he's, he's knowable. That Like a loving dad who wants to, to be in the lives of their kids. That's the love of God. That's the kind of good news that the gospel brings. And then thirdly, God is accessible. God is there, God is knowable, and God is accessible. His perfection and your depravity make you his enemy. Your sin and his perfection make you his enemy. And yet, and yet, Jesus gives his faultlessness to you 
so that you can be brought near to the Lord. You see, the question I want to leave you with this is today. Is this gospel message good news to you? Is it not just kind of good news? Is this the best news you've ever heard? If there's not something that rises up within you that says this, is, this message is so much better, this news is so much better than, than anything else I've ever heard. It's, it's so much better than cheering on my sports team as they, they get the victory. It's so much better than that baby being born. It's so much better than getting that raise at work. It's so much better than the news of my candidate being elected to office. It's so much better. If, if the message of the gospel of Jesus isn't in a category unto itself, far above any of those other things, then what I would submit to you is that you believed a religious idea, but you have no relationship with God. That you, in fact, you're not saved. You're not a Christian at all. You're just someone who's added a religious idea to your life. You see, it's, it's very possible for us to make a profession of faith without actually having a possession of faith. And I just want to encourage you with this idea. If that's you, or maybe you've never committed your life to Jesus, why, why wait? Why wait any longer? Why not right now you submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus? Why not right now as you feel the Holy Spirit moving within you, convicting you, you feel your heart rate rising, you feel your mind racing, you're wondering, there's so many questions in your head right now, you're wondering, I don't even really know if I should do this. I don't even know if God really is there or he's really existing. If that's you, then that is the Holy Spirit speaking to you right now. God is drawing you to himself. Don't resist him. Submit to him. Give your life to him because Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just some thing that happened in ancient times uh, in a faraway place. No, his death was for you. His blood was spilled for you to save you, to secure you as his own and to show you as his beloved. So would you give your life to Jesus? Would you submit to him as Lord, as God, as Savior, as King? If, you, if that's you, then I want to encourage you just, just simply offer a prayer up to God. Something as simple as this. Jesus, I know that I've sinned against you. I know that you died for me. And I pray that you would save me and make me yours. Be my God and be my Lord and help me to be your slave. Amen. Something like that. As long as that is meant from your heart and, and proclaimed to God in faith, then you have become part of the family of God. And we'd love to help you grow in your faith. And so reach out to us here at Redemption and we'd love to be able to connect with you and help you grow in your faith in Jesus and to be able to know him more. And, and, uh, and so I'd encourage you to do that. So let's pray and uh, we'll, we'll sing to the Lord together. Father, thank you for today, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how good you are. We pray that you would help us to know you, to understand you, to proclaim your goodness and uh, to be able to um, not only just comprehend your word, this gospel message, but to apprehend it, that it would take hold of us. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.